Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words. If you love listening to this show as much as I love hosting it, I think you'll really like the Medal of Honor podcast, produced in partnership with the Medal of Honor Museum. Each episode talks about a genuine American hero and the actions that led to their receiving our nation's highest award for valor. They're just a few minutes each, so if you're looking for a show to fill time between these Warriors episodes, I think you'll love the Medal of Honor podcast. Search for the Medal of Honor podcast wherever you get your shows. Thanks. A quick warning. This episode mentions sex, violence, and includes a graphic description of the aftermath of combat. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words. In partnership with The Honor Project, we've brought this podcast back at a time when our nation needs these stories more than ever. Warriors in Their Own Words is our attempt to present an unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. Thank you for listening, and by doing so, honoring those who have served. Today, we'll hear from Captain Shad Mishad. Bishad served in Vietnam on a psychiatric team where he evaluated and assisted soldiers dealing with mental health issues. In this final part of his interview, he talks about the rest of his service in Vietnam, including the most traumatic night of his life and how he continued to help veterans after he returned home. Well, there was no definition for PTSD, you know, uh, stress or something like that they would use. There was, we had nothing to work with. We literally went in there and played like we were a Beverly Hills mental health workers. And these soldiers would come in covered in all kinds of stuff, smell like dogs or whatever. There was nothing normal or whatever. You were strictly flying by the seat of your pants using everything you could. And even your diagnosis or whatever, stress, everything was acute stress, acute stress. I mean, I wrote that so many times and the fact that... uh, you know, this could be psychotic uh, because of so many that had been out there and done horrific things or whatever. And, uh, you know, the Cali trial was going on at the time. Kent State happened when I was in Vietnam. Uh, the riots uh, in Long Bend Jail after Martin Luther King. I mean, there was so much chaos when I got there. And thank God for the whole, I, I had a little experience, but now I'm really in it. I'm smelling it. I'm flying in it. 
I mean, it's like uh, adapt and improvise, just like combat. You know, you fly into a unit and get caught because you drop. They drop me in, and if the chopper couldn't get in, I'd be all night with either a uh, artillery unit or a stand down unit with infantry soldiers. So I really got enmeshed into the war and listening to them because, you know, I was, I looked very young and I didn't wear, I'm a psych or whatever. Uh, at the hospital, the medics would call me psych or whatever, but basically I was just Captain Shad, eventually just Shad. I wanted to know because I think just like in my work the last 51 years, you have to know what's really going on to help anybody and particularly with combat vets. You know, they could sit and talk and it's like a movie or it's like some kind of story. But to really sniff it and smell it and fly into it, smell the burning diesel, smell the shit burning in diesel fuel, smell napalm after a napalm attack, having you do med caps, which when whenever there's sort of quiet area, some of us would fly in the dust off into a village that had just been swept, try to pick up the wounded and try to uh, mostly were kids and women and try to give them, you know, some kind of a medical attention and and just a vacuum, picking up two and three year old kids and bringing them to the hospital, wondering what are we going to do with them? I mean, you know, it was all this kind of craziness that was going on. And uh, I participated in that. I I was on R&R after an accident I had. We were shot down. And I I got beat up a little bit. I went on a in-country R&R in Saigon with the JAG officer that handled that case I spoke about earlier. We became very close because he was throwing me all these heavy cases to evaluate for court-martials. We went down there, and we're just walking around Saigon. And Saigon it was like uh, 10 million people at that time from all over the country. It was a slum. And we were... We walked through the black market and we saw these two kids on the curb with this little mama sign. They were about, one was almost one, the other one was a little over one and a half, two years old. And they were selling them for one MPC, which was a dollar because they were orphans. And, you know, Jim, my my sidekick had two kids. He was 27 year old JAG officer. And I looked at him, and I, I was always hoping to have 10 kids when I got out of this mess, you know, a good Catholic boy from the South. And uh, we bought them. <laughs> so we've got two babies in our arms. And we looked at each other like, what do we do now? So we headed back to the hotel where we were staying. And there was an international hotel. It was like six bucks a night. And there were prostitutes everywhere. You know, they were G-I-G-I, you know, outside your room and everything. So we we hired a couple of them, not for sex, but to take care of these babies until we could figure out what the heck to do with them. And uh, they were covered with bumps and stuff. They had rashes and things, and we had no idea what their history was. And so we decided to take them to the third field hospital, which was the largest hospital in, in, in the ward in Saigon. And we took them and went in. We were both captains, so we could walk right into triage and everything. And we found some nurses, and they put some stuff on them and cleaned the kids up or whatever. We didn't say anything. <laughs> there were hours. We said, we're going to return them somewhere. And we spent the day with them. And that was uh, that was a mistake. Uh, 
that was a real mistake because we got really attached to him. We'd go back to the hotel. We didn't know what to feed him. He did. He had had a couple of kids. But, you know, you're in Saigon in the middle of the war. Uh, you know, what are you going to buy? What are you going to do? You know, the Boom Boom girls knew what to do and take care of them. And, but, we, you know, we were running out of time. We just had four days. And I got to head back to my unit. He's got to head back. And so we started looking for an orphanage. And luckily, we found uh, an Australian orphanage uh, in Saigon, right on the outskirts. And we carried the two kids there, and we begged them to take them. Cost us 100 MPC. I think it was for both of them. It could have been 100 MPC to take them off our hands. But that was... uh, that was a mind fuck. I mean, you said, tell it like it is. You, you've been with these kids for days and whatever. You've been taking care of them. And then when they opened the doors there, there were probably about 300 kids sitting on, you know, out there in the dirt with volunteers and stuff, trying to maintain them and felt like we kind of dumped them and uh, never forgot that. And, uh, and we headed back and, uh, Jim was never the same. I mean, he really cost him when he went back. And then I went to another assignment in the three Corps in the Long Bend area. But it just uh, it was things like that that, you know, I could go on and on. I, but it was just those type of experiences. Uh, you know, I was court-martialed for my mustache. That's why it's still on <laughs> what's left of it. It was called the famous mustache case of 1970. I was very popular, particularly with enlisted and those that hated officers, because when I went on R&R, I had just gotten, I'd been nominated for a Bronze Star for Achievement, not for combat, for my commanding officer that had me flying all over one and two corps when I first started, very close to him. And a new commander came in, hospital command, never been in a war zone, decided that everybody's going to be stateside. We're going to have our hair cut, military cut, sideburns gone, mustache is gone. I'm surprised he wanted to take my eyebrows off. He probably would have because it looked like I had three mustaches. And I had a legal mustache. And, you know, and I had a legal, uh, you know, everybody, the surgeons had chops and, you know, we're a surgical hospital. We're not combatants. You know, I saw combatants that looked more like dog soldiers than us. And he decided uh, I was flying up uh, to one of the hospitals, my my last assignment with the colonel. And I came back and he was gone. And we had the new colonel and everybody comes up and says, hey, watch out for a wiener. Wieners after everybody. He's trying to get everybody to do this and no cussing. And what the fuck? And. Sure enough, I come in, I land uh, on the helo pad. I'm coming through triage, you know, and uh, the XO is this West Pointer guy. I never forgot. And he goes, there's one right there. There's one. Like, there's one what? <laughs> you know, the next thing you know, I run into this guy in the latrine outside, taking, cleaning up, you know, the latrine area uh, for officers and stuff. It's just basically a wooden shed and stuff. I was trimming, whatever. And he came up and said, keep cutting, keep cutting. And I was just, you know, shaving, trying to look appropriate. I've been gone for a week. And he says, "Uh, I know who you are. 
about them all, I want that mustache off. And I looked at him. I said, what the fuck are you talking about? Who are you? And he says, I'm the XO. And so the next day he runs into me and it's not gone. And before you know it, they pull me into the colonel's, you know, the, the new head, wiener. And he goes, uh, I hear you refused a command to shave your mustache off. And I says, I don't have to shave my mustache off. It's legal. He said, not here. I'm changing the policy. I said, well, I'm not shaving it off. And he said, you're going to have repercussions. So I left and I'm going, man, everybody's looking. What's going on? And I get a knock on the door uh, at my hooch in about, oh, 1700, <laughs> whatever. And it's XO going, uh, you need to come back down or whatever to the office. So I come down there and I'm like, wow. In the meantime, I call my JAG officer and I said, can you believe what's going on? Because he was with the general uh, only about two, two or three clicks away in Da Nang. And he said, you don't have to shave it off or whatever. So I said, well, I'll let you know what happens. I go in. They decide to give me an Article 15, a $10,000 fine, which was my salary for the whole year. Can you imagine for a captain in Vietnam? They give me an Article 15. I said, I refuse. And I, I knew that as an officer, as a U.S. Army, an 03 officer, that I could refuse it and ask for a court-martial. So I refused it. And they said, if you refuse, we're going to have to court-martial on you. And I, I said, you got to be kidding me. Court-martial me. And so they uh, went through the proceedings, and then I get to select the kind of court-martial I want. I don't want a special. I want a general court-martial. I want, a, I want a, everybody to know that I got a general court-martial for this. And sure enough, they file a general court-martial. And Jim, my, my buddy, the JAG officer, couldn't believe it. He's going, you got to be out of your mind. Whatever. Just don't worry about it. This will never go to, I mean, don't even worry about it. Worry about it. Then I get restricted because I've been flying all around. I'm the human service officers for one and two corps. All that's changed. That's removed. I have to sit there. All I can do is go to the clinic. And uh, so I go to the clinic. I'm waiting to hear where this is going to go. And I'm you know, I'm not choking, but I'm going, wow, I'm, I, I was going up for a bronze star. And, and a month later, I'm going up for a general court martial. Just kind of hit me how absurd this is, like everything else. So all of a sudden I get the notice and the court martial is it's in early September. I'm grounded and the paperwork goes over to the general. Of course, my JAG officer works for the general, but it's processed. And he's going through the paperwork. I wasn't there. And the commander and the XO were there over at the uh, general's command office. And uh, he pulls up the accusations about refusing (laughs) to shave a mustache. He looks at Jim. He looks at that. And he says, what the fuck is going on in this army? The commander Within a month, was removed of his command. The XO was removed from his command. But I had to be punished. The head of psychiatry came up from Saigon, heard about this mental health person that's a problem going up against the commands. So I get transferred down south to Free Corps. That was my punishment because they couldn't punish me. But, you know, I've spent 
Nine months. I mean, everyone in there still, the ones that are alive are still my best friends. I mean, we saw things. I had probably the most traumatic night of my life. I was the first night I was AOD, administrative officer of the day, my my second month in country. So I'm the commanding officer from, what is it? Let me get this right. 1900 to seven in the morning, I got a 24 hour duty call. And so I'm now in charge of the hospital. What happens that night, nine o'clock? Whiskey three, this is Redbird two. We got mass casualties, 101st infantry coming here, coming to your hospital. Everybody's overloaded. Okay. You know, you're looking, you hit this button, it gets all the, everybody open. You've seen MASH, all the lawns are going off, the nurses, the surgeons are coming in. Boom, the hospital is rattling, the choppers are coming in off the South China Sea in there, unloading, filling the gurneys up, coming down the runway, opening into triage and dumping GIs on the ground like sandbags. Boom, this goes on for an hour 10, 15, 25, 30, 35, it ends up being. And and thank God, you know, the general surgeon, a good Alabama boy, just start sorting, start sorting. And we're in there like they're sorting through Black Friday shopping. Shit is everywhere. These are bodies, and some are in pieces or whatever. And I'm starting to faint. <laughs> I mean, it was just trying to drag and see who's screaming and who's what. It was total chaos for me. And the surgeons are coming in and the medics are getting in control. And Big Jim pops me, says, I need you. Bam, he hits me. Okay. And I start, we had like four tables, four at a time to get up on the table. But I throw this big green berets, this redheaded kid, you know, kid, he's, he's a captain. Get him up on the table and I'm starting to see, you know, what's going on. I mean, it's hysteria because people are screaming and yelling and bodies are being thrown in. The choppers are rattling the thing. And Big Williams, the surgeon, comes over and says, pushes him off the table. He says, only the live ones. Well, And I look, when he threw him off there, the back of his head was gone. He looked totally normal to me facing up. And it was like, wow. And it was one thing after another. And next thing, there's this guy screaming. I go down there and I look down and there's just a half a body. And he's talking to me. Tell my mother, God, pray for, don't let me die. I says, you're not, you're not going to die. You're not going to die. I'm here with you. And I'm looking down and I'm seeing there's nothing down there. And he's just bleeding out and he succumbs. And I couldn't get, I couldn't get his grip off of my hand. Literally, two medics had to come over and almost break his hand to unlatch. And that haunted me for a long time. And then, so this goes on all night. Some are going into surgery, some are dead. When things slow down about three o'clock, I've got 12 to 13 dead GIs that have been stripped if they weren't dead already, if they were not stripped, I had to take one at a time with the medic and strip them down. We had a niche on the dog tags. We had to open their jaw, lock the dog tag in. So in case they got messed up or lost or misidentification, at least they could pry the jaw open to get the dog tag out. So we're sitting there stripping them down and 
one of the other medics is bringing the body bags and we had to take all their valuables. They had a bag, this corduroy bag or whatever that had a natch. We put their watches and pictures and stuff. And it was just dramatic pulling out pictures of their girlfriends, their mothers, their kids, and putting that in the bag and sealing it and then sticking it in the body bag after you had locked the pallet and zipping it and then storing it. And did that for about uh, two hours. And then I had to, I was covered in blood. I mean, it sounds like a horror show, but this was the horrific night of my life. And then I had to go down to the commander's office. I was the temporary commander at five in the morning and contact Saigon. And you're trying to write, you got all the names of everything. I had to report the dead, the wounded, this or that. Luckily, one of the uh, assistant sergeants came in to help me because I'm just kind of in shock. And I'm like, wow. And I keep thinking of Big Red, who was this, you know, I had to strip him eventually. And he had all his kids, his second, third tour, Green Beret. And just, uh, he looked totally normal. Didn't have the back of his head. I just, just weird stuff that I don't think many people will ever see. So, 0700 comes in. I go, uh, the new commander comes in and says, uh, you hung in there, kid, or whatever. So far, I go back to my hooch. I collapse. 30 minutes later, medics pounded on my door. I guess I got traumatized by Big Red. I didn't put his stuff, I put it, I didn't put it in the body bag. So they said, you've got to go back. And we had these steel connexes where we stored the bodies until during the day when the more, more could come over and pick them up, take them over to the Nang Air Base. I had to go back into it. It's like 115 degrees. These bodies are in these steel connexes. It's like 140 in there. And I had to find Big Red to put his stuff in. And luckily on the fourth body bag, because I can't even tell you the heat and stench, I had to strap it on to his neck because he had rigor mortis had set in. And I went back to my room and I just prayed I would never remember that day. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged from Europe. The Welsh built houses, communities, kingdoms, and continued to survive through Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. The language and culture influenced by these sources continued to change and thrive, becoming ancient and modern at the same time. Join me as we travel through the history, meeting the kings, queens, nobles, and everyday people that create and grew modern Wales from the seeds of the ancient past. Creoso, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast.
let me tell you, after the court martial coming back, I knew how fucked up I felt. I mean, I just wondering why I ever volunteered. And yet, you know, I was kind of like, what? I mean, this was more than I think anybody could handle because I was in so many different settings and whatever. But I remember every time I was locked in with a unit on a stand down or whatever and just thinking I could have been leading that group maybe lasted a week and thinking of how they were treated, how poor the services were, uh, how the politics had gotten in by the time I was there, 68, 69, 70, you know, 18, 19-year-olds, that's who fought the war. They were the ones on the ground. How the fuck are they going to move from here? They're going to land, you know, against, you got all these doves now, and they're going to look at you. They're going to, which they did, confuse the war between the warrior. You know, we we lost the war, but we didn't lose a battle. I mean, none of it made sense. So I, I come back. I went to the VA for a few days. I was I was numb. I landed. I would sleep during the day and be up at night. That was my routine anyway for the first week or two. And my folks knew that I was different. And here I was good old shad, going to work in a mental hygiene clinic and be a, a regular what? No way. I, I didn't know what to do. And one of my sergeants, one of the my sergeants was drafted out of USC. And uh, he was back at USC in his master's program in, in psychology. And he begged me because we were, I mean, I didn't get into all the closeness that happens in a crazy scene like that for those that survive it. And even the MASH hospitals or whatever, we were all affected. Uh, We now know secondary trauma. But anyway, (laughs) that was down the road. And I just knew. And I didn't know what I was going to do. So I had a 19-year-old girlfriend. We eventually said, I got to get out of here. My folks know I'm different. I can't watch TV because the war is going on. I feel like I should be there. I was more comfortable there. What am I doing home? So I guess he had to go see my sergeants in Los Angeles. Here I am. I, you know, I'm going to L.A. just to see him. And then I plan to go to San Francisco and unwind. Like so many, you know, you'd hear back to the world, heading to the West Coast, going to San Francisco, hang out with the hippies. I don't know. I didn't even smoke dope yet. I said, wow, man, I, now I can... I can try that without going to jail for three years. So I get my truck. I got my everything I own, my girl. You know, I'm turning 26. She's 19. We head across country and I land in on my sergeant's place right near USC and pull in my truck. And it was just hugging him. He says, you got to go with me. Got where He says, it's a lecture. The number one psychiatrist in the world, head of all psychiatry in the world. He's over NPI, UCLA and over the VA or whatever. And I, I'm hoping uh, you got to come. I want to meet, want him to meet you. I'm in Navy bells that I got. I got a knit shirt. I'm growing chops now. Fuck the mustache. Let's just see how far it can go. Trying to get my, you know, what little hair I had at the time, you know, just trying to look, you know, not so military. And my girl is, you know, she's blue-eyed, gorgeous, blonde down to past her butt. And we go over to USC at this big lecture halls, 500, all these mental health people. And I'm standing on the side. I think they thought I was a janitor, except for my girl. And standing on the side, and there's this 
British psychiatrist, Dr. Philip May, in his silver suit lecturing and talking about psychiatry of the future and mental health or whatever. I'm not, you know, it's like, wow, you know, mental health, man, come talk to me. And uh, sure enough, the thing ends and I'm waiting for Bob and Bob runs up to him and, and gets him to meet me. And I'm like, no, 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 I don't want to meet this guy, you know, whatever. And he introduces me to me. And he says, this is my commanding officer in Vietnam. And I just want you to meet my commanding officer. I want you to meet Dr. Fu. And he just looked at me and says, you, you were a mental health officer in Vietnam. I'm taking you to lunch tomorrow. And he says, I have to talk to you. And I said, I'm looking at you. You want to talk to me? What do you want to talk to? He says, no, I want to take you to lunch. I've got to talk to you. And I, I said, uh, well, I'm leaving you San Francisco. And if he says tomorrow and Bob says, no, I'll tell him where it is. It's in Westwood somewhere. I don't know where Westwood is. I haven't seen anything but coming in off 10 into L.A. And uh, so I agree. All right, I'll go for lunch. Uh, we're staying in an attic where my sergeant said in an old building right across the street from USC. We're just parked there, my truck in the back with everything. So the next day I go to Westwood to this place, right? You know, it's right across from UCLA and there's Dr. Phil May comes in. I look like, uh, I look like a hippie and he, he looks like a very conservative psychiatrist with a British accent. And he tells me that he needs the largest VA psychiatric hospital assessed. And I said, for what? He says, we have over 335,000 Vietnam era vets in this county and only 7% come to this VA and mostly by police and by ambulance. And I said, what's that got to do with me? That's not my problem. He says, no. He says, I need someone that was there that has a mental health background to tell us what we're doing wrong. I said, are you kidding me? I just came out of the largest bureaucracy in the world, I've been in the craziest war ever. I'm heading to San Francisco. I got to get a lot of this stuff out of my head. I don't need to be assessing another fucked up place. And he says, please. And we talked, you know, whatever. And I said, well, you know, maybe in a few years. And uh, he was pretty persistent. So I go back and sure enough, I head up to San Francisco. I had a couple of friends that were up there. I went on uh leave there in 69 for a week. And I really wanted to live up there. You know, it was amazing, particularly from someone that hadn't been east, west of the Mississippi. And the first night I'm in my friend's house, because I'm connected to my sergeant, the phone rings. Pick up the phone. Uh, this is Joe Zenner's apartment. This is Dr. May, is Shad Meshad there. I said, Dr. May, are you kidding me? How'd you get this number? You got to remember, this was just a landline phone in somebody's apartment where I'm staying. And Frazier, my buddy, he'd given him where I was staying. <laughs> he called every day for the week trying to tell me about the problems there or whatever. And I'm trying to figure out with my girl, I don't know how to hang. I don't know how to be a hippie. I don't, I, you know, I've been in school my life military, here I am, you're 19, I'm 26. I don't know where we're going. I don't know if I can just hang out. I don't have a roadmap or whatever. 
and she was getting antsy because she wanted to work, settle down or whatever. And uh, after a week, he offered me a 90 day TDY under psychiatry to review the hospital. And I figured, well, at least I'll be doing something because I'm going crazy just trying to figure out what's going on. I'm still still got the war playing in my head. Head down to L.A. I go the first day to the V.A. I see Dr. May. He has me come in. They're all of his staff, all psychiatrists, psychologists, all in white uniforms with name tags in a circle. I walk in. My chops have gotten bigger. My hair's a little bushier. I'm still looking like a hippie. And he says, this is the man that is going to evaluate this hospital from the mental health clinic to the inpatient wards to everything and anything and give an assessment. And the room was dead silence. And I'm looking at these guys and they, it looks like something in a Woody Allen movie, you know, all just sitting there in their white with their name tags. Nobody's talking. No one moves. They kind of look like they squinched a little bit, you know, and their face like, who the hell, what the hell's happening? Well, Dr. May had that kind of power because they were in the process of ha- hiring a director of the hospital there, the largest one, a new one, and a chief medical director and a chief of psychiatry. And they were all candidates. But here I'm coming in to evaluate it. So the first day I go into evaluations. Evaluations has this German psychiatrist, his head of evaluations. And he sits there, he talks with a German accent. He almost looked like a SS officer. And he's throwing Vietnam vets out because they've got patches on their sleeve, FTA, fuck the army on or whatever, coming for help immediately, unpatriotic out. He's throwing half of the people out of there. So that's number one. I had two vets that were on the psychiatric ward with another German psychiatrist, female, who taped her interview with them about why and what they were doing and why they were in this hospital and what they did in the war, whatever. And she taped them without them knowing it. And they found out. And they broke into her office and stole and destroyed the tapes. They were caught and kicked out of the hospital by her. That's the second day. And then I'm told to go find them. Now, I'm in a three-quarter ton truck. I've never been to the beach. They find out there at Venice Beach, there was an old pier called P.O.P. Pier, condemned pier. So I drive down there. I finally found it. And they're under there with Time and, and uh, what's the other magazine? Time and Life or Look magazine with them interviewing them about the conditions at the VA hospital. And I walk up and, you know, they got beards and long hair. And I sit down and I said, I'm Shad Meshad. I'm uh, I'm the new uh, mental health person at the VA, mental, Vietnam vet mental health person. And I hear you had some problems. And they looked at me like, who the hell are you? And I said, yeah, I hear uh, I hear you got kicked off the war and I want to take you back. I'm concerned. <laughs> You're concerned. Who are you? And I, I sat down with them, and one of them uh, was a southern boy from uh, Texas. So he 
he recognized my accent before, you know, we were talking and I just talking like I would, I meet another vet about where I was, what I did and whatever. And he said, okay, threw him in the truck, didn't have a phone, drove back up to the hospital, go into the administrative thing with these two guys. And Dr. May has them put in a special room in the administration building and assigned me to them. And, uh, that was the start of the journey. And I, uh, uh, from there on, uh, after I did the 90-day assessment, I gave the hospital an FF plus and why all these problems from admissions to the fact that the staff were afraid of Vietnam vets. Uh, Vietnam vets were treated like they were third-class citizens coming in. Nobody wanted to work with them. Uh, that got around because the VA didn't have a great reputation anyway as far as being a warm and fuzzy place to trust. And so they said, uh, okay, we, we want you to deal with it and fix it. We'll start your own unit. So I started the Vietnam Veterans Resocialization <laughs> Unit. And I hired a couple of uh, street vets and uh, a VSO, a uh, veteran service officer, whatever. And I said, uh, I'll bring them to you, but you're not going to find them here. So I, I went out uh, back to Venice Beach where these guys took me back and showed me that POP Pier, the condemned pier, housed over 250 Vietnam vets. I said, really? It just looks like a old pier standing there. So they took me in through a trap door upstairs to the pier, and uh, the whole world opened up. Uh, all of the condemned Parts and rides and everything were filled with tents, and quant, you know, plywood. And that's where I met. My history started with Vietnam vets. And from there, it went from uh, Coral Canyon, which was above Malibu up in the canyons, where a Marine group of veterans had set up a fire base up there, uh, hidden from whatever, covered with camouflage setting over there. There were about 150 that lived up there with girlfriends or whatever. It was like a commune of combat vets. And that was a whole story in itself. In fact, 10 years later, 60 Minutes covered it with me. We went back to revisit that. And during the 70s, you know, I, I was one of the spokespersons for Vietnam vets struggling with what was called in one time magazine by a psychiatrist, post-Vietnam syndrome. They're not psychotic. They're not character disorders. They have post-Vietnam syndrome. Well, what the hell is post-Vietnam syndrome? Well, the VA was using PVS, but it has no diagnostic value. doesn't really say anything except that they're different. So if they don't have psychosis and they don't have character disorders, how does PVS work? And in 74, I got a call from a grad student working on his PhD in Purdue, Dr. Charles, well, now Dr. Charles Figley, who was doing research. He was a Marine Vietnam vet in the early years of the war and was writing about distress, which I was asked earlier in this show about what, what did you call it, whatever. Well, he was calling it delayed post-traumatic stress, delayed traumatic stress. We didn't have all, that's all we had. 
So we went to a conference two, three years in a row, the APA talking about post, no, delayed traumatic stress. We kept fighting them to say, hey, this is a condition. It needs to be in the psychiatric cookbook, textbook. It needs to be in there. By 78, Figley edited and published a book called Delayed Stress Amongst Vietnam Vets. By that time, many of us had been squawking. We saw the war end in 75. We saw the POWs come back partially. The focus was on the war. The movies were starting to come out about it. And, and Congress finally looked at what we were talking about. And it put pressure on the APA to come up with a definition for this delayed traumatic stress. And they came up with late 79, became official in 1980 in the DSM-3, post-traumatic stress disorder. And that was the beginning of this disorder's naming. Now, it's evolved quite a bit in the last 40 years, but at least we had a diagnosis. And it took years for the VA to utilize that because if you got compensated, you had to be either psychotic or character disorder. Well, that's ridiculous. You couldn't have six to seven million psychotic fighters coming back if there's not a definition, if you want to call them psychotic. And the character disorder means they can't can't obey orders. They can't take directions or whatever. I mean, golly, what, what do you think a war veteran or war fighter is? I mean, you live by being able to adapt and take directions and achieve the mission or whatever. And that gets no compensation. And when I came to the the VA in West LA in the early 70s, a lot of Vietnam vets who were really sick with PTSD didn't have the diagnosis, so they play crazy and they would get a disability rating, maybe 30% for psychosis. And I told them, you don't want to do that because you're going to be locked into medication and that diagnosis, you're never going to get work. You're not going to have a life. I fought many of them about it, but many of them did it. And the other character disorders had to wait till the 80s to find out that they had PTSD. So it's been going on all through the 80s. We realized that PTSD, people thought it was a Vietnam vet disorder. <laughs> we know that trauma's been around. If you read the the great Grecian writings 4,000 years ago. It had different names in the 19th, 20th century, you know, soldiers fatigue, combat stress, shell shock. I mean, they had all these names. It was never in the psychiatric journal. And uh, now we have PTSD. And it's, uh, it's had its challenges, but, you know, I've uh, been a component. I've, uh, Dr. Charles Figley, who really was one of the key components, along with Dr. Heim Shatton, Robert Lifton out of Yale, a lot of these people that really knew that there wasn't a proper diagnosis for this type of near-death experience, which combat is, and surviving it and how it changes the brain and everything. We know so much more now that uh, it's incredible, but that's kind of my story. I've been involved in it. 
helped set up the vet center program under Jimmy Carter, Max Cleland in 78, 79. It became public law 96-22. Was involved in the setup of the first hundred before I left and started the National Veterans Foundation in 85. And we've been rolling 37 years uh, just recently. Work with over 500 thousand veterans and their families and kids and not a lot of bureaucracy to deal with but there's still a lot of problems with the VA uh, leadership and uh, that's pretty much a quick version of my history that was Captain Shad Mishad to learn more about him check out his memoir Captain for Dark Mornings the link is in the show description Thanks for listening to Warriors in Their Own Words. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcasts.com. We're always looking to improve the show. For updates and more, follow us on Twitter at team underscore Harbaugh. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Warriors in Their Own Words is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with The Honor Project. Our producer is Declan Roars. Bridget Coyne is our production director, and Sean Rolhoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Warriors in Their Own Words. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.